It's Wednesday, September 29th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Asit Sharma in the house. Good to see you. Good to see you, Chris. Glad to be here. We've got software earnings. We've got another new public company, but we are going to start with the stock of the day. Shares of Dollar Tree up 14% this morning after the discount retailer increased its share buyback plan from $1.5 billion to $2.5 billion. Uh, the company also said they're going to start selling more products at a higher price point due to, let's just call it the usual suspects, uh, supply chain issues, labor costs, that sort of thing. Um, what do you think of this? I mean, it seems like good timing on the company's part because the, you know, even with the pop today, this stock is, is still down for the year. Chris, you know, my initial reaction was uh, it's not that huge a deal, but let's take it in context of the piece of data that you mentioned alongside, which is that they are going to be adding new price points above $1 across their Dollar Tree Plus format stores, and they're going to keep experimenting in their legacy stores with price points above $1. Now, this seems like a very uh, minute shift that a company can make. But if you look at Dollar Tree versus its prime competitor, Dollar General, its stock has outperformed miserably, underperformed, sorry, miserably over the last five years. Both companies have fairly vigorous comparable sales growth, mid to high single digit in any given quarter, which is pretty good for a dollar store outfit. And both have gross margins that fluctuate in the 30 to 32, 33% range. So, what's the difference between these two concepts? Well, Dollar General has always had a pretty wide price point in their stores. You can buy items for a dollar, or you can buy items for ten dollars. Dollar Tree, uh, uh, in opposition to this business strategy, has clung. To, if I can, if I can hit a very awkward sounding past tense here, has clung to a one dollar price point for a very long time. Now, it acquired Family Dollar several years ago to branch out because Family Dollar primarily offers a wide range of price points. Why is this price point business so important? It's because all of these stores operate on a very big retail footprint strategy. They're constantly opening up stores in rural areas, expanding to white space across the United States. When that's your business model, you want to squeeze every dollar you can out of every selling square foot you can. The problem with Dollar Tree historically is that it's lagged behind the sheer oomph that Dollar General brings because of that price point. So if you look at its productivity per square foot, it averages around 100 bucks per square foot in sales. Dollar General averages 30 to 40% above that in any given year which means that Dollar General is squeezing so much more out of its operations, enjoying better cash flow, enjoying better operating income. So I think the, the one-two punch is very appealing to shareholders. They want to see that Dollar Tree can compete on a multiple price point basis and lift that uh, square foot selling percentage. And they like, frankly, the fact that there's cash on the balance sheet. This is a company that is now um, back to an investment-grade rating. It's paid down some of the debt that it had on its books. So, I think they've got reasons to be pleased. And maybe this is a reason to not count Dollar Tree out and not call it a perennial also-ran, which I have been guilty of doing over the last several years. 
You're not the only one who's called them that. And you reminded me of the conversation I had with Jim Gillies last week where the topic of share buybacks came up. And, uh, you know, it's something that uh, some companies don't do a great job of in terms of uh, timing. They're they're buying when their stock is really high. Um, you know, in the case of Dollar Tree, this, this seems like a pretty advantageous way to use the cash on the balance sheet that they have. And you're right. I mean, if they can... You know, they they don't need to radically overhaul their pricing strategy. They don't need to sort of across the board start hiking up prices. Um, they can be very judicious in how they do it. And if they're smart about it, then a, a year from now, the, their numbers start to look a lot better. I think so. And your point is very well taken on the share price. This is a company whose stock has only increased by 25% over the last five years. That's a grand 5% a year in share price improvement versus Dollar General, which has increased by 210% over the same time period. Both of these are, are before their dividends, so price return only, not total return. So There is an argument to be made here that with a slightly new business strategy, the shares are undervalued relative to their potential relative to a benchmark competitor. So, they're doing the opposite of what many companies do, which is, as you say, to buy shares when they're too high and waste capital. Uh, this looks, on the face of things, pretty efficient. Warby Parker is going public today. The online eyeglasses retailer is doing a direct listing with a starting price of $40 a share, which gives Warby Parker an initial valuation of close to $5 billion. I'm not going to take any issue with how they're pricing their stock, uh, not when we've seen what we've seen over the last 18 months in terms of whether it's IPOs, direct listings, SPACs, whatever. Is this a business that interests you as a shareholder or a potential shareholder? It actually is, Chris. The older I get, the more I realize I've been tripped up by not paying attention to strong brands in the marketplace. And I think that Warby Parker has an extremely well-known brand among consumers. They set out, oh, 10 or 11 years ago to reinvent the eyewear selling industry. At that time, there were very few companies that were selling online. This company started from scratch, built its own supply chain, controls its own distribution, has a very reasonable price point. They their eyewear starts at 95 bucks for, for a pair of very nice glasses. And the glasses look spiffy. I have to say, you can't ignore this as a potential shareholder. Look at the products out in the real world. They've got a very attractive portfolio of eyewear. As I say, it's reasonably priced. It's a direct-to-consumer model. Not only do they sell online, but they have uh, now a, a very big retail footprint. I think this is a company that potential shareholders may want to pay attention to. They are founder-led. The uh, co-founders are still going to own a big chunk of the company and a controlling interest in the company, so they can call their own shots. And the financials look interesting, too. Warby Parker isn't um, profitable yet, but on an operating basis, they're trending towards break-even, Chris. When you stack their numbers from 2018 to 2020, you see a lot of growth. In 2018, the company had revenue of about $273 million. 
in 2020, they had revenue of about $394 million. Now, they stumbled last year when everything shut down in the retail world. But looking at their numbers this morning, the first six months of 2021, they show a really fast rate of growth versus that softer period in 2020. Uh, so they've done about $271 million in revenue in the first six months of this year. You can extrapolate that out to uh, a pretty decent year that's going to be above $500 million in revenue. And as I said, they are trending towards break even with that revenue for the first six months. They've only lost about $7 million bucks on a net income basis. So there are lots of things to like about this company. I, I wanted to ask you uh, generally, are you familiar with this brand? Is it just me who, who's seen this out in the, the real world and thinks, uh, wow, it's, it's about time they went public? Uh, I am familiar with the brand. I've, I've owned Warby Parker glasses in the past, and um, I, I think they've done a, a pretty smart job um, with their physical retail strategy. Um, there's, there, you know, there are a couple uh, nearby. There's one in Georgetown. There's um, one that went in uh, here in Old Town Alexandria, sort of on the main strip, uh, King Street. So I, I think they've been smart about um, uh, uh, slowly, methodically expanding their physical footprint. Um, I also think th they have a, a pretty compelling story in terms of an industry that doesn't really get a lot of attention. I'm not saying it should, um, but there is essentially a monopoly in the eyeglasses industry, or there has been for a very, very long time, which is why the price of eyeglasses um, is so expensive. It's why Warby Parker is able to come in um, with a product that is a quality product at a much lower price. So, uh, I'm, I'm rooting for them just as a consumer, as someone who wears eyeglasses, um, I don't know that I'm going to rush out and buy the stock. I, I, I always like to see how companies do those first couple of, of quarters, uh, both in terms of their results. Um, are they delivering in the way that they say they're going to deliver? Because it's so much harder to be a public company than a private company. And um, what is management style? You know, how do the, how are they dealing with uh, the questions they get on a conference call? Those are all things I want to see, but. Um, uh, a, a decent a decent opportunity for them certainly yeah i agree i i like that you mentioned that they are one of the scrappy underdogs in the eyewear world which is i think dominated by just a few big conglomerates luxotica comes luxotica, to mind luxotica yeah that's the, 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 that's the big one conglomerate that has given so many small players trouble uh, they do have a, a virtual monopoly in this business and through MA, they've only gotten bigger in the past few years. So, it is fun to see an underdog with a great product. Um, and I'll ask you in maybe two or three years from now, Chris, so they say in their uh, prospectus that they've got a pretty good success rate with customers coming back. They've got a 50% sales retention uh, within the first couple of years of selling a pair of glasses and a nearly 100% sales retention within 48 months, which means that Chris Hill might try another pair after his Warby Parker purchase, but within about four years, he's going to come back and buy another pair from them. So, we'll need to check in uh, in a few years on that. Yeah, the one, the one uh, thing that just sort of made me laugh was what, I, I went into the store, and this is before the store in Old Town uh, existed, so I was in Georgetown 
Um, I had my, I was wearing my Warby Parker glasses. There was just a little, little problem with the frame. And I thought, I, I feel like I need a little bit of an adjustment. So I go in there, staff was very helpful. And the only thing that sort of made me chuckle was, uh, the staff person, um, uh, sort of showed me to a c comfortable seating area where I could sort of hang out while she was going to adjust my glasses. And, um, uh, right before she went back to work on my glasses, the last thing she said to me was, and by all means, if you if you want to um, um, relax here and, and read one of our magazines, please do. And I thought, yeah, no, I can't do that because you're holding my glasses. <laughs> I appreciate the offer, but it's kind of a misguided offer because I'm not wearing my glasses. But aside from that, great customer service. They uh, aim to please. <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's move on to Endava. Shares of Endava are up this week after ending the fiscal year on a strong note. Fourth quarter revenue for the British software development company grew in the neighborhood of 50%, which as revenue growth goes, is a pretty nice neighborhood. Um, this is what you and I were talking about this earlier. I'd never heard of this company before. How did Endava come across your radar and what did you think of the results? Yeah, so there's this big and wide wave of digital transformation going on in every industry. We, we all know that, but this digital transformation is split up between software that's being offered by umpteen companies and software consulting services, which are offered by only a few. They're the big giants like Accenture, and then there's a series of smaller companies. Globant is one. Epam Systems, E-P-A-M, is another, and Indava is a third that I follow. These companies are really interesting because there's a need within larger corporations for companies to come in and help improve internal software and software DevOps, provide the glue between different systems, but also to help with customer-facing technology. And these smaller companies like Indava, which has a market cap of just $7 billion, help with that. I feel like this is a big playing field. If you wanted to construct a basket around this, I like the idea of Accenture. It's this huge mammoth consulting company, which can provide a solid base. And then you can add the other three companies I mentioned and play this digital transformation wave on the consulting side. I like Indava because again, it's so small and growing quickly. One of the things I look at in this industry is how a company is growing its headcount. And the headcount at June 30th, 2021, which has got these numbers yesterday, is almost around 9,000 employees. You can compare that to about 6,600 employees at the end of the previous fiscal year. And you can see that Endava is really hiring people and acquiring smaller consulting companies to be able to meet capacity out there in the marketplace. It's a sign that they see a lot of demand ahead. And so this hit my radar screen simply because it's just often bewildering to try to sort through the different software as a service companies that offer so many solutions as companies try to get uh, more proficient in remote work, more proficient in fintech options, more proficient in customer communications. I could go on and on and on. It's almost easier to spend a little bit of time on this space between these four companies I've mentioned. So that's how it hit my radar screen. Um, these are sort of the big picture things I like about it. Just to mention a risk, which is actually shared by the other two smaller players that I mentioned, Epum Systems and Globant. 
The top 10 clients for Indaba account for about 36% of revenue. That's decreasing a bit versus 40% last year. But each of these small companies basically has the strategy to go very, very deep into a few large customers and then pull in new customers and gradually expand out of those concentrations. Um, the other thing that I want to mention about this company is that it's got a really great uh, revenue diversity. It's got about 31% of revenue in North America, um, 42% in the UK where they're based, and 24% in Europe. So it's a company that's pretty well spread out across some major centers. They need to get a little more representation in Latin America, which is becoming a hot spot for digital transformation. And I think they could expand their footprint in Asia. But there's a lot to like in this little story. As you mentioned, Chris, the, the biggest thing is the eye-popping growth that the company's been able to generate. It's still quite small. Last thing I'll say uh, before we discuss this a little bit, it does have a high valuation. With that, 50% range growth comes up 56 times uh, earnings forward multiple, which I think is not too difficult to stomach when you consider that the the playing field, the market is, is very wide for companies like Indava. There is going to be work for years in the, the industries that it focuses on. For this company, that's pretty much payments and fintech, financial services, technology, media, and telecom. That's where they focused, and they could stay in those industries and do well for quite a number of years to come. Uh, two, two questions. Uh, first, I want to make sure I, I heard the numbers correctly. You said in terms of their top 10 clients, that represents 36% of their revenue. That Do I have that right? Yeah. Come back, Chris. Chris, come back. No, no, no. no. <laughs> just, just because that, that, yeah, I, I, that's I, correct. I, that doesn't seem... Like a huge risk to me. Like when you mentioned, when you prefaced it by saying, I think this is a risk, I assumed you were going to say their top 10 clients represent some number north of 50%. I thought it was going to be one of those concentrations. But the fact that it's 36% down from 40, that's it, to the extent that that's a risk, that seems like it's a risk that's getting smaller. I think you've put a reasonable frame on it. And part of this is, you, you get so used to the trees when you're in the forest. For those of you out there who invest in software as a service companies, you're used to seeing zero concentration because a company is selling to thousands and thousands of customers. So when you flip over to a consulting business and see a concentration like that, it's scary. But Chris, as you point out, it's actually reasonable. It, you know, it means that they could still lose a couple, three, five of those very important clients and not take it too much on the chin. They could probably rebound um, with the rate of customers they're adding anyway each year in a short amount of time. So yes, thank you for putting a more reasonable layer on that um, and not running clear away from the company after I said that. Um, second question, as you mentioned, the market cap is around six and a half, you know, somewhere between six and a half, seven billion dollars. Given their growth, given the market they operate in, how confident are you that Endava is a standalone public company in three years? Because it seems like the type of business that a larger fish could come along and make a big offer to. This is a really good question. I always think about Accenture, which has a market cap of $206 billion and an enormous balance sheet. The three companies that I've mentioned are all quite small, although Globant and Epum Systems are slightly larger. 
but it wouldn't be difficult for a company like Accenture to come in with a stock and cash deal and acquire any one of these. Um, why hasn't it yet? It could be just lack of strategic fit and the fact that Accenture itself is already so entrenched with uh, some of the same customers, they don't see the need to get distracted with a smaller acquisition. Now, could there be mergers between the three companies I've been talking about? Potentially in the future, we could see one or two of these outfits merge. But because each of the companies that I'm talking about, again, to give you the names one more time, Epum Systems, Globant, uh, and Endava, because they're all founder-led companies where the initial founders still hold uh, some type of appreciable stake, uh, most would be uh, with this company, Endava, but to some degree with the other two. I think that the founders are very focused on doing their own thing and pursuing their own vision. So I'm going to give you a 65 to 70% confidence <laughs> interval that it'll still be public in a few years. Asa Charma, great talking to you as always. Thanks for being here. It's a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>